Hebrews, starting at Hebrews chapter 9, which is on page 1206, 1206. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, External regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We're going to skip on to chapter 10, verse 19, which is over the page. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest, in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, thank you. Hebrews, as um, Charles was saying last week, is um, it moves us from spiritual milk to meat. And uh, meat can sometimes be hard to digest for someone who's used to to milk. And um, I found it a very meaty week as I've been preparing this sermon. It's, uh, it's hard to digest at times. At times it seems impenetrable, I think, this passage. But once we get into it, once we get chewing on it, it'll really nourish us. I trust that that'll be the case. I have been very blessed by this passage. So I'm going to pray for God's help for us to digest this meat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with this word. And we pray that we would chew on it, taste it, digest it, and benefit from it. For your name's sake. Amen. So do keep that that passage open. And if you're a note taker, even if you're not actually, it may help you uh, this evening to to have the headings in front of you on the, um, the back of the green handout. Um, let me begin with, with one word, which is key for the whole of these four chapters of Hebrews. Confidence. It's confidence. The whole of this swathe of Hebrews, chapter 7, 8, 9, and then culminating in 10, is all about that one word, confidence. Have a look back, if you will, at uh, chapter 10, beginning of the chapter 10 reading Katie read for us. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, and I take it, sisters, since we have confidence. And then if you cut almost to the end of that section, verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It is all about that one word and concept, confidence. 
So before we dive into the meaty passage, I want to make a few preliminary observations that I trust will help us as we go on about confidence. You'll see them on the handout. First, confidence has to have an object to it. In our culture today, that, that's sort of increasingly misunderstood. And we talk about confidence as if it is a virtue in and of itself. So we say of him or her, he or she is confident. Okay. Confident in what? Confident in whom? Because confidence cannot stand alone. It's always a thing we have in an object. And um, you'll know if you watch The X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or Britain might possibly have talent this week, um, you'll, you'll have seen that scenario play out. It's almost painful every week where someone who patently has no talent is about to go out there and face the music quite literally and they're speaking with their parents often. And their mum and dad say to them, go on honey, you'll be fine, just have confidence. And the contestant could well be forgiven for thinking, have confidence in what? And actually, as the whole performance plays out, we're left asking the same question. So confidence always has to have an object. Second observation, it should be directly related to the ability of its object to support us. The confidence should be directly related to the ability of its object to support us. So it is a foolish thing to have confidence in a weak thing. It's going to let us down. It is a wise thing to have confidence in a strong thing because it can support us. If in a freak winter there's a very hard frost and the Thames freezes over, and I say to, to you, do you have confidence in that ice to hold weight? I presume you will answer that question not by staying in your front room and stroking a beard if you have one and thinking, hmm, yes or no. What you will do is you'll check out the thickness of the ice. You'll check out the object of the confidence to work out whether you can have confidence in it. If it's strong, you'll have confidence. If it's not, then you won't. Third little preliminary observation, the test of confidence is always cost. Test of confidence is always cost. So how do I test your confidence in the ice, if we're going to let that scenario play out on the Thames? How do I test your confidence? Don't I increasingly put things that are more and more valuable to you on that ice and see how you respond? I say, are you confident the ice will hold uh, your television? If you nod, I'll put it on. Are you confident the ice will hold your dog? I guess Rachel's dog is quite small, so there's every chance it will hold it. But if you, are you confident the ice will hold your house safe? Are you confident the ice will hold you? And the mark of the confident person is that you and I will just keep on nodding through that slightly embarrassing exchange with the curate. We'll say, yes, I am confident. Why do you keep asking me questions? You see, the mark of confidence on the test of confidence is cost. We'll come back to those three things as we go through But can I ask you this evening, are you confident in Christ? That is the question. Are you confident in Christ? As Christians, we are called not to be self-confident people. We have more reason than anyone else to reject that. I do not trust myself. But we're called to be Christ-confident people. We are Christians, not selfians. And so we trust him. But that's the question. Do you trust Christ? Can he be trusted? Do you have confidence in him? Can we really have confidence in him? He talks a good game, this Christ fellow, doesn't he? But can we have confidence in him? Here are some of the things that he promises. 
He promises that this life here is not all that there is. That it's just an hors d'oeuvre that's gone wrong before the main course of eternity. That it's a, a misprinted introduction to a book before the main chapters of eternity run free. He promises that this life is worse than the life to come if you're a Christian. He promises that actually death is not a terminus where the train stops, but a connecting point at which every human being goes one of two ways. As Charles was saying a few weeks ago, he promises that death is not a full stop, it's a, it's a, it's a comma. Jesus promises that he's changed the grammar of death. He promises that death is but a brief pause for you and I for a Christian. The gateway only to a place where what is ugly and sad and bad and tear duct exercising is replaced with unadulterated joy. So Christ talks a good game, doesn't he? But the question is, can we have confidence in those promises? Is he just a champion Aesop's fable writer? Is he putting in for some sort of epic Booker Prize? Or is he writing fact? How thick is the ice that he has? Will it take our weight? How confident are you, are me, am I, in Christ? The way this passage talks about that place, the new creation, is uh, using language that's unfamiliar to us. But let me take you on a whistle-stop tour. It's called the True Tabernacle. Chapter 8, verse 2, the place where God dwells. It's called the greater and perfect tabernacle. Chapter 9, verse 11, paradise. It's called the most holy place. Chapter 10, verse 19, the place where there is nothing ugly and only beauty. And in the Old Testament, it's the place where God symbolically dwelt. The place where paradise was. In one of the Psalms, my favorite verse Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I want to go to that place because that's paradise. The most holy place. Can we have confidence, though, that Christ can take us there? Well, since confidence is directly related to the strength of its object to support us, we need to look at Christ, don't we? Let's look at his credentials. That's my first main point. Christ's credentials. It seems the original readers and hearers of this letter to the Hebrews were Jews who'd been converted to Christianity. In today's parlance, they'd be called Messianic Jews. And to be honest, they were finding it quite hard to let go of their Jewish systems and routines and sacrifices and to move on to this new guy, Christ. Quite difficult when you're used to all that stuff. They quite liked it. And the writer to the Hebrews is doing a sort of spot the difference again and again if you read chapters 7 to 10. You know, spot the difference. Did you ever have that read with you as you were, if you were a child? He holds up one picture from an Old Testament system and he says, have a look at that. And then he holds up a Christ picture, how Christ replaces that. And he says, can you spot the difference? Can you see that Christ has brought something better? Or to use another analogy, he's, he's saying that um, the Jews had been using outmoded systems and outmoded technologies. He's saying it's as if they'd been trying to send emails on a typewriter. And he's saying, guys, 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 stop it. You'll, that, that'll never work. There's been such a thing as a MacBook Pro invented, and it'll really help you out. 
Steve Jobs, he's got some great products out there. He's saying the Old Testament systems have been updated with hardware that goes by the name of Christ. Have you seen what he's done? You really need to get into his stuff rather than the Jewish things. He's brought something that's much, much better. So let's have a look at Christ's CV. Let's see how he's brought something better. Firstly, chapter 7, we didn't have it read. It is wonderful. Do read it in your own time. Jesus is the descendant of this chap named Melchizedek. Good name, strong name. Melchizedek. And that's kind of a big deal for Jesus. It means, verse 2 of chapter 7, he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. That's a good combination for somebody. Verse 3, it means he has no birthday. He's the uncreated one. And it means he has no death day. He's the eternal one. Verse 16, he's the possessor of an indestructible life, a Teflon-coated life that can't be touched by death. Verse 26, he's the one who's holy and blameless and pure and exalted above the heavens and set apart from us sinners. He's kind of a big deal. Okay, you might be saying, if you're listening, but how does this chapter 7 Melchizedek stuff help me know I'm going to get to heaven? How does it help with the confidence question, getting to the most holy place? I see he's impressive, but what's he going to do for me? Well, have a look down at chapter 9, verse 7. Have a little look at it. Katie read it earlier. The writer of Hebrews tells us how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. He's saying, in the most holy place, there was a guest list, and it's very short indeed. The bouncers had the easiest job because there's one name on it, and he only comes once a year, barely worth employing them. And he's the high priest. And he always comes with an item which is unusual. He always comes with blood when he goes into the most holy place, and he scatters and sprinkles that blood on everything. It's the blood of goats and heifers and uh, lambs. Why does the most holy place have to look like an abattoir, we might be thinking? It's a bit gruesome. I thought where God was, we light candles, and it's a lot more relaxed. The point is that sinful people like you and I cannot enter the presence of a holy God without there being a death. Because if we're sinful, we're guilty, and if we're guilty, we deserve to die. Blood We bleed when we die. And the blood is a picture of death. So the only way a human being can go into the most holy place is if the guilt is transferred onto an animal and that animal is killed and that animal's blood is sprinkled so the high priest can go in safe. That is the only way. And remember the spot, the difference thing? He's saying that's how it happened in the Old Testament. Have a look at how Christ does it. Did you spot the difference with Christ? It's a massive difference. With Christ, he spills his own blood, chapter 9, verse 14. It's not animal blood. It's not even human blood. It's divine blood. If you're going to check out the blood type of Jesus, it's divine. And he spills that blood. And royal divine blood covers a multitude of sins permanently, much more than a calf or a lamb, their blood does. Apparently in Australia, they struggle with bushfires from time to time in a hot summer. 
And I'm told that the way to protect yourself best from a bushfire is to light, um, go to a field of crops and light a circle of crops around you, set it on fire, which sounds kind of unpromising when you're trying to avoid being burnt. But the reason that's a good idea is that after that's done, it leaves a, a circle of scorched earth around you. And that when the fire comes to you, it's suddenly got nothing more to burn when it comes to you. And the reason it's got nothing more to burn is that fire can only burn crops once. Once it gets to scorched earth, it can't go any further. It lacks fuel. And in a similar way, God the Father can only have his wrath at a sinner once. His anger is extinguished once that anger has, has taken root. And if his anger at my sin has been taken onto a heifer or a lamb, then I'm free temporarily. But if my sin has been transferred onto the head of the Son of God and his blood has been spilt in my place, God the Father's wrath cannot touch me. The fire of his anger has already been extinguished. It runs into an area where it's already burnt the ground. Christ protects me and I'm safe. That's what the writer is on about here and it's wonderful. Or take a different picture, chapter 9, verse 14. If Persil cleans the tougher stains, Christ's blood cleans the toughest stains. I believe it's unorthodox behavior to wash your clothes in blood. Don't recommend it for the guys amongst us who may not know better. But the way this image works is that Christ's blood works its way in even to the deepest, darkest labyrinths of our hearts, even down to our consciences. So that even the guilty things that we dare not speak to others about over a mug of coffee, they are cleansed too if we trust Christ. It cleans the toughest stains. Chapter 9, verse 26, take a different picture. He's abolished sin. So that rather like when slavery was abolished, those who once were held in its sway were no longer affected by it. The power of sin has been ushered out the door, legislated away amazing. He's done it. So Christian friend, this evening, do you have confidence in Christ that he can take you through to the most holy place? Do you have confidence? How thick do you think is the ice that he's offering you? Will it take your weight if you stand on it? And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, yes, for goodness sake, I've just written three chapters worth trying to convince you that he will. He's done enough. He spilt his blood for you. What did you want? You're a hard lot to preach to in the evening. Do you know that? Are you confident? Yes. What more could you want? So that's Christ's credentials. Okay. Secondly, the application of that, candid commands. There are two sets of candid commands. The first is for the weary. Chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. Okay, so if we're confident in Christ, so what? If we're confident in Christ, so what? Chapter 10, 19 to 25. Now, this is for those of us who need to be reminded to keep on going in the Christian life, who are maybe tempted this evening to give up. Now, I don't know why you are tempted to give up, if that is you. Maybe it's a bout of depression. Maybe it's just stress, and life is pressured and busy, and church just seems like another thing in the schedule you could do without. Maybe it's that you've been a Christian for a long time, you can't remember a time when you weren't. And you've been around the block a bit, spiritually speaking. And this sermon is nothing new. You've heard this before, but it kind of bounces off you like water off a duck's back. Do you feel weary? 
of the Christian life? Well, this is a candid command for you. Let me read it. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that, brings, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there is such a thing as real guilt to feel. There is such a thing where we have sin, which is unconfessed to the Lord Jesus Christ, unforgiven, therefore, by him, and we are unrepentant of it. Now, that kind of guilt should needless. We should struggle to sleep at night. But there is such a thing as phantom guilt. It is not real guilt for the Christian, and yet we feel it nonetheless. This is guilt for things that we have confessed to Christ. He's forgiven us freely, and we've repented of them, and yet still they bug us and haunt us and dog us. And sometimes, if we're a Christian for a while, we're haunted by a particular thing in our past, or a particular failure that's just on our hearts, consciences. And if that's you, I want you to hold it in the front of your mind, let it dance before you, if you'll do that. It's an ugly thing. Hold it there, and listen to what I'm about to say to you. Your guilty conscience has been cleansed. It's been washed with pure water, sprinkled with Christ's blood. He's dealt with it. Hold on to that fact by faith. And so draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance. That's what we need to hear. He's dealt with it. It's a candid command to the weary. Second one to the weary is this, verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, like this evening, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Isn't it sometimes wearisome being here every week? You know? Maybe we commute Monday to Friday, and a commute on a Sunday? Seriously? Maybe you've come this evening, and you really wanted to listen to the sermon online because you don't want to talk to anyone. You wanted to save the seat next to you and someone sat in it and it was him. Oh no. You don't want to do the small talk over coffee. You're feeling weary and the sermon's not even that good this evening. You're thinking, why did I bother coming? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says no. He says no. It says, lift your eyes up, stop navel-gazing, lift your eyes up. And he says, can you see the day approaching? The day, capital D, day. Can you see it coming? The day when Jesus will return in his glory with the angels. Can you see it coming? The day when the books of judgment are going to be opened. The day when he's going to take us home to that most holy place where all ugliness, sadness will be extinguished. Can you see that day coming? He says, we're one day closer to that day now than we were yesterday. We're one whole week closer to that day than we were last time we met over coffee and did the small talk. So please don't stop coming here if you'll forgive the double negative. I need you here, he says. I need you more than you know. It is such an encouragement to me just that you're here, let alone that we chat. Because I'm struggling to keep on going in my Christian life. But you're here. You're trusting. That's great for me. Will I see you next week? Plumman pointed out after the morning sermon, I'm actually not actually going to be here next week, but forget that. We're on holiday. Others will be. Okay, so candid command to the weary. 
Secondly, a candid command to the complacent. To the complacent. This is verses 26 to 31 from chapter 10. And I must warn you that this is indeed candid. Verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. In other words, if we've been warned, maybe from this pulpit, maybe our own Bible reading, that a certain thought pattern or habit of behavior is sinful for a child of God, for a Christian, and we persist in that, then Jesus can offer us no comfort whatsoever. It's a stern word to us, actually. Verse 26. You know, one of the things I think is that the very definition of London foolishness is this, is seeing a cyclist cycling around London with his or her helmet on the handlebars. You know, you know the thing? You think you've got the very thing you need in the event of an emergency to save your life, and you're not wearing it. Why? Because proximity to that helmet is not going to help you. I want to just chat to them at the traffic lights. Love the helmet. Looks good there. Look better on your head. Because if you want to avail yourself of the benefit a cycling helmet provides, you've got to wear it. And it's the same with Christ. If we want to receive what he has for us, receive his forgiveness... We need to wear him. And wearing him means that our lives will be changed radically. It will mean a radical change in behavior in every department. That's what wearing Christ looks like. We cannot be forgiven and go unchanged. And therefore, if we're living unchanged lives, there's no comfort for us. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. Talk to Katie afterwards. I am not perfect. You probably didn't think I was anyway. But it's talking about a direction in life thing. Are we becoming more Christ-like Monday through Tuesday through Wednesday through as the months and the years go on? You are, most of you who I know. It's not a perfect thing, but it's a direction thing. You've got to wear Christ. He goes on. If someone rejecting the law of Moses was killed, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has... And then he proceeds to tell us what we're doing when we sin. Have a look down at it. I didn't really want to read it out loud. It's, it's pretty horrific. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has? Now the image here is of Jesus as the friend who sticks closer than a brother, standing between us and hell. Standing between us and that chasm. And he calls out to us this evening. He says, friend, I love you. Do not come this way. This way lies emptiness and pain and punishment. Do not come this way. And if you and I respond to him by saying, but what if I love my sins too much? What if I just love them? I find it so hard to change my direction. What if I just come just past you? Just carry on. Do you know what he responds? He says, over my dead body. He says, over my dead body. And the thing is that many professing Christians do that. They ignore his warnings. 
and they trample over his warnings. They prefer a liberal theology, maybe. They erase him and his difficult things out of Scripture. And they trample over the Son of God. And he says, over my dead body. And on they go. No wonder he closes that little section by saying it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, Charles spoke a little bit about whether it's possible to fall away as a Christian last week. Now, that is a terrifying question. I think the answer this passage has to that question is don't. Just don't try. Final point, costly confidence. This is verse 32 and on in chapter 10. I'm going to read out from verse 32, if you're with me. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions, so do not throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. I want you to imagine the scene. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews gets on the sofa alongside the readers and opens a photo album with them. It's an unusual photo album to open with them. It's not entitled Wedding Snaps or Holiday 2014. It's entitled Suffering. I want you to imagine the conversation as they kind of flick through together. Oh, look, here's the one where you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution for being Christians because you believe Jesus was the only way in a pluralistic society. Do you remember that? Okay, turn the page. Oh, yeah, almost forgot the time when you stood up for and next to other Christians who were imprisoned because of their outmoded views on sexual ethics. Turn the page. Almost forgotten this one, where those guys actually confiscated your television and sofa in an act of institutionalized persecution just because you went to church. Oh, look, can you see you're in the corner of that photo and you're smiling. You're joyfully accepting it as the HD widescreen walks out the door. I guess you knew you had better and lasting possessions. Now, what he's doing is a cost-benefit analysis of the Christian life by means of returning to a previous season in their their Christian lives. And, And he's pointing out that even though this photo album is marked suffering, they were smiling in the photos. They had joy, a deep joy, even in the midst of it. And that's confusing for our culture as it looks on. Because no one in their right mind puts a smiley face emoticon next to words like suffering or persecution or confiscation of property or imprisonment unless they're deranged, right? So what's the secret? What did these guys have? Well, the secret is the word we started with. It's there in verse 35. Confidence. So do not throw your confidence away. You remember what we said at the beginning, the test of confidence is cost. If I trust the ice is going to hold me, I'll step on it. I don't mind. And these Christians, they knew the Christ ice, if I can put it that way, was going to hold them. 
he could take them through to the most holy place, to paradise. They were richer than they ever knew because they were in Christ. And so they could be imprisoned, insulted, given the cold shoulder, not given the promotion at work, seen as the odd one out, see their widescreen go out the door. Whatever it was, they didn't care. They were confident in Christ. It's okay. The ice is going to hold them. They could step on it. Kill me if you like. I'm going to live with him. So I just want to apply it briefly to a number of scenarios for us. I think this can be true for us. First, I find it hard to talk to my friends about Jesus. I nearly said colleagues. Thankfully, I find that easier. But I guess that's a struggle for all of us, right? In a non-Christian world, to talk freely and openly about Christ. We can do that if we're confident in Christ. Because we won't care about being accepted by my boss or my best friend from childhood more than I care about being accepted by Christ. Suddenly, it's a no-brainer. It's easy. Maybe when we look in the mirror in the morning, we don't like what we see. And we struggle with body image. We think we're too short or spotty or fat or not sporty enough or whatever the thing is. But looking in the mirror needn't scare us. If we're in Christ, we can be confident in Christ. He's accepted us. He loves us. If we're confident in Christ, the idea of maybe never marrying or maybe never being able to have our own children... He might make us sad for a moment when we think about it, but actually he's going to be our husband. He's going to marry us as the church. If we're confident in Christ, we can cope with that. If we're confident in Christ, seeing all my friends save all their money and build extensions and go on these potch holidays, but I can be free to give away money self-sacrificially because I know I'm richer in Christ than anyone else. Culture's changing in our country. The cost is getting higher. Of course, we see beheadings on our screens, but we're slowly being inched out of the public square. And I pray that'll stop. But if it goes that way, sure, take my TV, sure, imprison me. I'm rich in Christ. I'm confident in him. I want to close with the very precious words of verse 37. Let me read them. You may want to shut your eyes and listen. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And I want to say, friends, it's not long now. It's not long to wait before Jesus returns. He could come back this evening. Let's pray he does. Then you love that childhood question from the back seat of the car. Are we nearly there yet? And the writer to the Hebrews says, yes. Yes. Yes, we're nearly there. And when he comes, don't we want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You didn't shrink back. You lived by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to take on board the warnings, the candid commands to us. We want to take on board your word of encouragement to us. 
Please would we look up and see the day approaching. Please would we look back and see the confidence we can have in Christ. And please would that change our lifestyles this week. For your name's sake. Amen.